This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel The Chalk Artist, first with the author, Allegra Goodman, and then with my guests, Alice Baumgartner and Brad Ridke. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Nina is a high school English teacher, young, idealistic, hoping to change the world with poetry. Aiden is one of her students, talented but disengaged from the life around him, preferring to spend his time in the fantasy realms of online gaming. Diana is another of her students, Aiden's twin, shy and awkward, wishing for invisibility. And Colin is Nina's boyfriend, the chalk artist, creating beauty out of dust and erasing it as quickly. Nina wants to save them all, but what would that even look like? When does art, in all its forms, literary, visual, virtual, offer salvation? And when does it sow the seeds of plague? I had the opportunity to speak with author Allegra Goodman last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Allegra Goodman graduated from Harvard and received a Ph.D. in English Literature from Stanford University. Her previous novels include Intuition, The Cookbook Collector, and Catterskill Falls, which was a National Book Award finalist. She lives with her family in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Allegra, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Allegra, a few months ago, I featured a novel on this show called The Animators by a wonderful young novelist named Kayla Ray Whitaker about two women who are cartoonists. And in that book, as in yours, I was really struck by the challenge of writing about the visual. In your book, Colin is an artist, and you describe his drawings many times over, and Aiden is a gamer, and you describe also the the optics of the world that he inhabits. And, you know, of course, all writing is descriptive to a certain extent, but here, where it seems particularly important to evoke Colin's talent and the magic that Aiden is experiencing, it felt to me like the descriptive was highlighted. And I wonder if you could start by maybe talking about what was interesting to you about trying to capture the visual in words and what was challenging about it. Oh, good question. Um, Well, first of all, there was the element of wish fulfillment because I really always wished I could draw. So I wish I could be a great draftsman like Colin and and have that ability to draw a sketch of a person that really looks like a person, that person, or draw anything that, you know, came to mind. I, I'm so there's that element that that drew me to that drew me to writing about somebody who draws. There's also at a different level, there's a competition between words and images that has gone on for a long time, I think. And we live now in a very visual age with pictures being exchanged all the time and everybody photographing everything with their camera, with their phones and sending those images everywhere. And then we have, and, and yet, and also texting each other all the time. And I was interested in using words to um, evoke images and seeing how far I could go with it. It was really fun to write those gaming sequences and create, create a world. And also really fun to enter into an artist, a visual artist's mind and, and hand and draw with him. Are you someone who tends to respond to the visual more than or equally to the, um, I guess, to the written word? I, I tend to think of them as 
dichotomous in a way that I, mm. I, I always tell this story about how, you know, graphic novels are a really big thing these days. And, mm. um, and my oldest friend uh, who actually appears frequently on this show as a guest reader with me was visiting and she was talking to my daughters about um, some graphic novels that her children really like. And my oldest daughter said, in this house, we read books with words. <laughs> and and then my friend was very horrified and immediately mailed us several graphic novels which all of my children have become completely obsessed with i mean they, they, we have like there's like six of them and they read them over and over again every day they are constantly lying around the house which makes me insane because they're never put away but i think that i was always someone who really responded much more to the written word than to the word the, you know words and pictures or pictures alone mm-hmm. and so i tend to think of writers as people who are like that but, you know, this book is one, I think, that blends the visual or, 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 or recognizes the magic of the visual so much that it kind of made me wonder about you as a writer. Yeah, I'm actually really interested in, in art and in visual. I am a very visual person. Weirdly, if I'm confronted with a graphic novel, if there's, wor- if there's text and images on the page, I'll end up reading the text and not focus that much on the images. But given just images, I will respond. In a lot of my novels, actually art and paintings are very important and the way people look at things is very important. So it's a really big part of the way I think. And I wasn't an early reader. And before I learned to read, I wanted to be a visual artist (laughs) when I was a child. And did you have talent? Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think so. You know, when I learned to read and heard stories and started writing myself, I realized that sort of my medium was going to be language rather than images. But the interest is always there. I always wanted to, you know, paint and draw and, and do all of those things. You know, speaking of, of the visual and, and the way that it, it emerges in our society today, I have to confess that I was kind of completely unaware of the world of multiplayer online role-playing games until I read Nathan Hill's novel, The Nix, a little over a year mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how you first became aware of these games and if you've played them and why it became something that you wanted to write about. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, um, I became aware of them because my children dabbled a little bit when they were teenagers, and other friends of theirs dabbled a lot more. And I got kind of intrigued by just the size of the gaming industry, which is bigger than the movie industry, the numbers of people who come together in communities to play these games, and sort of this com- this rich I thought rich combination of mythology, technology, and social contact, worldwide social contact that is happening in these games, this whole culture that lies within our culture. So all of those things drew me to to this. And I and I I did you know I talked to people who work in the gaming industry, on the technical side. I read memoirs by people who play games. I I was just really interested in what could also happen sort of on the extreme end, the way the seductive power of them and the way people can get sucked into an an imaginary world. And have you tried them out? Very little. I'm actually one of those people who is um, myself not a gamer at all. I don't have the interest or the personality for it. I tend to... I tend to mess it up if I try it. Like I'll do the wrong thing. I pro- my brain seems to be not wired well for games. And when my sons showed me World of Warcraft, for example, which is sort of a classic game, I was 
not impressed with the graphics. And so I decided to make the graphics in my imaginary games really spectacular. <laughs> they are kind of spectacular. I mean, I've never been intrigued by gaming at all until I read your novel. And then I was like, if a game like this existed, I'd kind of want to play it all the time. <laughs> so was that where the book started for you? Did it start with the with the idea of gaming or did it start with a character or where did it, I'm always interested in, in where something began, mm -hmm. where the first seeds kind of took root for you. Uh, the book actually started with the idea of Carrie, the single mother with the twins, Aiden and Diana. I, I was interested in writing about a child in danger. That was a theme that I kept coming back to at the very beginning before I had any details about the book, just child in danger. And I thought, what, what kinds of dangers do kids face in this world? You know, of course, there are the obvious ones. People fear that their children will get sick. They fear that their chil children will get lost uh, or hit by a car or some accident will happen or abducted. People have a lot of fear of abduction these days. But then I thought, you know, what kind of what other ways are there to be in danger? And I had teenagers of my own and I thought about the way that we are all, including adults, sucked into our screen lives. And the nature of adolescence is to push away parents and to enter a new world. And um, what would happen if that pushing away in that new world was um, a, a commercialized world, a game world? How would all of that work? How would the mother respond? What, what would be the experience and the attraction for the adolescent, the 16-year-old, Aiden? Uh, what's he looking for? What does he get out of it? Is this kind of a vision quest of its own? Is, he, is this a rite of passage that he has to go through? Is he going to survive it? All of those questions. That's where this book started. And were they always twins? Yeah. <laughs> and what was interesting about that? About the twins? Yeah. Or I mean, um, I just, you know, why? Like, because it's sort of what you're saying, this idea of this child in danger could in some ways just as easily be Aiden and his mom alone. So I'm curious yeah. about like why you always saw it as this duality. Yeah, actually, I was, I'm, all, I'm very interested in sibling relationships. And one thing that happens when when one kid pushes away the family, it's not just pushing away the parent, but pushing away his own sister, who's the same age. And she is also going through, I was interested also because she's a girl, and she's going through her own kind of um, dangers, you know, in a different mm -hmm. way, in a different gendered way. I think at one point, she, she reflects, Diana reflects that, you know, Aiden, um, around the time Aiden started, like, killing dragons, she started eating <laughs> a lot <laughs> and suffering from, you know, he started becoming a warrior and she started getting corroded with self-doubt, you know. Um, yeah, so there's I was, that one, I think I was that. just reading that line over before we did the interview. He paced the house while Diana hunkered down. He refueled standing at the kitchen counter while she curled up with goldfish crackers on the couch. He started killing monsters and she built up her defenses, practiced her self-doubt. Yeah. Which I exactly. thought was so great, like that, that idea of practicing her self-doubt. Yeah, I think girls do that, unfortunately. Yeah. And she has to, so the question then for her becomes, will she overcome that? You know, in some ways what she's going through is just as dangerous as what he's going through, in my opinion. So, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that one thing that was intriguing about um, the gaming was, was the way it kind of plays with mythology. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about that a lot in the context of Diana and Aiden, because it feels like mythology resonates throughout this novel, some, mm -hmm. to some extent explicitly with some of the names that you choose and sometimes mm -hmm. implicitly. But, you know, with Diana and Aiden, there's, it feels like there's a lot of, um, you know, resonance with, with uh, Diana and Apollo, the twins from yeah. Greek and Roman you myth. Are, and, you are absolutely right. And you're the first person who has noticed that. <laughs> the first, really? I'm shocked yeah, because it seems so 
clear, you know, it seems obvious to me, but yeah, the book is totally, totally, um, resonant with Greek myths and, um, exactly. And you put your finger on it. It is Diana and Apollo and Apollo is the God of sun and poetry, and, but also the God of poetry and also the God of the plague. Oh, I did not realize <laughs> that. Well, that, that, that adds a whole new layer. I just had a little shiver there. Yeah. <laughs> And Diana's the moon, and she's she's the hunter. The hunter and, and the um, runner, right? She... Yes, and yes, and you're the first person who said, I was waiting for somebody to say that. And I decided that I wasn't going to say it myself until mm-hmm. somebody... <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. and of course, and, and Daphne too, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was yeah, actually myth of Daphne. Yes. And, and it was, you know, I, uh, in the second half of the show, I'll be talking with my guest readers, Brad and Alice about your novel. And I usually tape that section later, uh, after I've had a chance to talk to you, but because we needed to reschedule, we taped it yesterday. And so we did talk quite a bit about, um, the Greek mythology, but as I said, then in a book that I read, uh, a while ago that I did for the show, Rebecca Mackay's The Hundred Year House, there is a Daphne mm-hmm. also evoking ah. Greek myth. And so only for that reason was I think I'm familiar with that myth. But, um, but you know, again, that one where Daphne, there's this myth of Daphne who is a water naiad, I believe, who is chased by Apollo yes. and yes. transforms into yes. a tree. And as we were talking yesterday, I had not realized, I was just rereading some passages before we had a chance to talk today. And of course her tattoos are these tattoos of the branches and the leaves. And again, you know, kind of reiterating that yeah. myth. And I think so much these themes of transformation that mm-hmm. recur over metamorphosis that keep yes. coming up in this story. Yes. That's what it's all about. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I just, I guess I was curious about, you know, if that was always there for you, if Greek mythology is something that you have always been compelled by, and if, you know, when you start with this idea of this mother and these twins, are you aware that that's going to kind of play in, or how much does it come to you through the writing? Oh, I planned it from the beginning in this case, and um, and it definitely informed my decision to have twins um, in the book, and I wanted them to be Apollo and, da- and Diana. I had the idea of da- about Daphne, and, you know, all of these characters have their counterparts, and I- I'm really interested in Greek myth, but as I said before, I'm also interested in sort of the way these myths, these sort of archetypal stories are also very important to these technologists who are creating these games. The games themselves are steeped in myth. And one of the ironies in the book is that Aiden, who becomes, who sort of discovers poetry, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and as you say, Apollo is the god of poetry. Aiden discovers poetry, but it's partly because his heart has been opened by playing all these games and being so, he's open to it because he's, li- he's been living <laughs> this poetic, mythical life for so long. But, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, switching gears a little bit, um, is just about the structure of the novel. And I was really interested by your choice to rotate through this range of character perspectives instead of choosing to align with one character in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, the last novel that we featured on the show, which is Jonathan Dee's The Locals, which is really very wonderful, um, did something similar. And I want to ask mm-hmm. you the same thing I asked Jonathan, which is when you're writing something like that, how do you know when it's time to shift perspective? How do you decide who, <laughs> ent- who enters next or how much time each character needs on the page or for the book as a whole? Mm-hmm. It, feels like oh, a harder, it feels like a harder thing to do in some ways than to have, <laughs> you know, to have a novel that's focused on one person. Yeah. Um, well, it's different. I mean, you know, every technique that you use as a writer has its challenges. It's sort of opportunities and challenges. So if I'd chosen to write the whole book from, say, Aiden's point of view, 
I would have had this constant focus and I wouldn't have had to worry about weaving in the other voices and the other points of view, but I would also be limited to Aiden's point of view. And one of the satisfying things about switching points of views and you weaving together multiple points of views is that you they sort of begin to comment on each other and the reader gets to see the story from multiple perspectives. So I, it is challenging, but it's also greatly fascinating to me. <laughs> I've, and I've done both. I mean, I, I there are some stories that sort of lend themselves to one point of view, and I've done that. Um, actually, the thing I'm working on now is all from one point of view. So, you know, again, and now how do you decide which one to switch to? <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. It, it's sort of, I think the story dictated it for me more than anything else. Is that something that changes a lot in the revision process? Or do you feel like it kind of stays stable throughout? Um, I definitely, this book I revised quite a bit. I worked really hard on it. And I think, yeah, I think there were times where it was sort of like, oh, I need to, I need more of, you know, carry or I need more of that I need more um explain you know I wanted it, it was all dictated by guiding the reader making it clear as possible so during the revision I developed I definitely developed some points of view and sort of click clarified and pared down others it's a pruning process mm -hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense mm -hmm. I know that um you recently wrote about this for Commonweal magazine I think but mm -hmm. I really wanted to you know we're talking about these these the way that gaming can kind of open you up to poetry or open you up to literature. And I am interested in your thoughts on the similarities and the differences between fiction and these kinds of games and the things that you think that they can offer us um, and the things that, you know, either or both the dangers that they potentially present. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting, you know, before, before the age of video games, when I was a kid and many of the readers were kids, you know, it was television. That was the big danger, right? Yes, you know, yes. people would, oh, my God, the kids are watching television mm -hmm. and they're going to rot their brains. And, you know, and before television, there were these lurid comic books. And, you know, you can read about, you know, the protests against the comic books and kids getting these horrible, violent ideas from comic books. Right. And then before the comic books, if you keep going back and back and back, what do you get to? You get to the novel, you know. Um, you know, in the 18th century, these screeds against these romance novels, you know, these defenses against the defenses for the novel. Um, but, you know, but people are wasting their time reading these these frivolous novels, especially women. And, you know, now we've sort of gotten to the point where, you know, your daughter is reading this like horrible pornographic YA novel about vampires ripping this white throat of the girl, you know, and you just say, oh, my daughter's reading, you know, she's reading a book <laughs> and you're so happy, right? You know, I, I don't, I think it's sort of a spectrum of creating worlds, a spectrum of fiction. And, you know, if you go before the novel, then you get to poetry itself, which, you know, was considered very problematic by Plato and others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so secular poetry. And I don't think one is good and one is bad. They're different forms for the imagination. And I think that there are novels that are a complete waste of time and are, are um, escapist. And there are games that are amazing that, you know, connect people and can be educational. And they're just powerful, powerful mediums, you know, for ideas and feelings. So, you know, it's, I don't really have a black and white view of one being better than the other. I think there is somewhat of a competition sometimes, but I was really interested in sort of, again, to come back to this sort of this conflict between word and image and games are very image based and novels are still very word based. 
And um, I think of poetry as kind of a third way in between the two. And so that's why when Aiden discovers poetry, it sort of, it opens a door for him, you know? It's like, and that's where having a, a teach a caring teacher like Nina, you know, makes a difference for him. She helps him open that door. Yes, and it feels like he sees poetry as a way to connect with people where he sees gaming as a way to wall himself off. Yeah. Maybe. Or, or become, well, gaming is a way to become someone else. And he still has that impulse to connect with people. He's sort of searching through the game for the real. You know, he wants Daphne to be real. Right, right. He, he wants, wants to meet connect. her in real life. Yeah, exactly. So he's confused about that. But I would say with poetry, the difference with poetry is it makes him reflect on himself. So it's sort of like he recognizes himself in the poetry in a way that he doesn't recognize himself in the game. In the game, it's sort of an alienation from himself. You know, he, he, he wants to become someone else, to go as far away as he can from, from his, feeling, his inner feelings, his, his youth, his inexperience, <laughs> his innocence. Mm -hmm. And in, when, he, when he discovers sort of Ezra Pound and reads the poetry, there, suddenly it's speaking to him in this very frightening way because he, it's like he, he recognizes what he feels and what he thinks, and he thinks, my God, how did he know? How did this poet who died before I was born know all of this about me? <laughs> right. So, so the difference might be, might be that poetry gets you to reflect on yourself, and it might have to do with self-knowledge. Interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end by asking you a question that I've been asking a lot of authors on the show in the last few months, which is we're in this time of, of deep social unrest in our country and political turmoil and a lot of very, very upsetting things going on. And I am someone who has always been a reader. I always turn to fiction and I have been, I still do that, but I feel like I am asking myself if it's what I should be doing, what it you know, what, what kind of meaning or purpose it has is, you know, in, in the bigger question of, you know, what meaning or purpose do we, any of us have in anything we do. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, as, as someone who is a writer of fiction, if that's something that you have found yourself thinking about and what answers you have come to, if any. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, um, there are times when we question, um, question where we should be spending our time and giving our attention. Um, another, another moment I, that comes to mind for me is sort of the time after 9-11, mm -hmm. uh, where people were really in shock. And it's sort of like, what do you do? What do you say? What is the purpose of fiction or art right now, you know, in our lives? And I think for me, the answer is, this is why art has to be more than escapist. And this is that art can have a role as commentary, mm -hmm. that art can have a role to provide a forum for people to see other people and to see themselves more clearly. It can, it can be an exercise in taking different points of view, as you, as you do in my book and others, where you can see the point of view of the parent, of the child, of the angry person, of the person running away, and um, be an exercise in empathy in that way. And lastly, I would say a novel validates um, individual lives. People are interested in talking about what, which lives matter, you know, and of course all lives matter, <laughs> but um, a novel is an exercise in, in demonstrating that the lives matter, that helping help the reader live with those people, enter into those lives. Thank you. That's really, that's quite wonderful. 
Well, Allegra, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. You're a very smart reader. <laughs> thank you. That's always nice to hear. <laughs> I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Brad Ridke and Alice Baumgartner. Brad is a high school English teacher and last appeared on Book Talk discussing Don't Let My Baby Do Rodeo by Boris Fishman. Alice is a graduate student in history at Yale University and last appeared on Book Talk discussing Jamie Attenberg's novel, All Grown Up. Alice and Brad, great to have you both back. It's great to be be here, Sid. So I wanted to start by reading something from page 158. Aiden has allowed his twin sister, Diana, to play the new Arcadia game, Underworld, and he allows her to use his avatar. And he starts by saying, that's you, said Aiden, pointing to a ghostly knight. More and more bats attacked her, flying mice with tiny vampire wings. Her stomach lurched when she saw what was left of her avatar. The bats had eaten half the knight's flesh away, but they had not exposed muscle or bone. No, their attack revealed something else, another creature, an elongated nose, black eyes, wide-set, rolling independently, an ear, unfolding like a leaf from the raw patch where the knight's ear had been, and from his forehead, nubs of horns. She was changing into a deer, She could reach out and almost touch her other self, the doe hovering before her, pale flanks foaming, ears twitching, body quivering with a strange, borrowed life. As she tried to catch her breath, she lifted her head and saw the deer prick up her ears. Her head was small, her neck long and delicate, her legs slender. How beautiful she was, heart pounding, adrenaline racing through her body. She couldn't take her eyes off her dear self. And I guess I felt like this kind of metamorphosis or transformation recurs in multiple ways throughout the novel. And I thought maybe we could start by talking about some of the ways that you two see it playing out and also about whether you think that it's a good thing. Well, it seemed to me that the two characters who change the most over the course of this novel are Aiden and Colin. Aiden gives up his addiction to gaming by not by choice, by force, and starts investing himself in school thanks to private tutoring from Nina. Colin also comes to realize that his art, which he had previously disdained as just drawings that didn't have any deeper meaning, is as something that was important and worth doing. So those two characters seem to have the biggest change. And I was curious about how the process of transformation or sometimes experience with negative transformation helps to bring about that change. Like Aiden's transformation is aided in part by the fact that, that he's completely addicted to video games. And Colin's transformation is also brought about by his obsession with Daphne, that by, in both of those experiences, what Aiden and Colin learn helps them to then transform themselves. So what I loved about this novel is that you're getting to see this really interesting reflection on how transformation actually happens and that often that transformation happens through these bad decisions and bad experiences. Alice, I really like that idea about negative transformation too. And as I was thinking about this, I was curious about the characters who you know, they're certainly not given as much focus, but they also don't get to transform. And they, 
I think they tend to be our more negative characters, like Victor, um, his brother, Nina's uncle Peter, and even Daphne to a certain extent. Although, she, in some ways, she lives the, the the most pure kind of double life, right? Because she's she's this avatar that's so busy leading on um, other avatars as a as a marketing ploy, and yet when we finally meet her in person, she's kind of doing the same thing so as much as she is is so purely two-dimensional she actually i'm not sure there 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 really is more than um kind of one side to her so uh, to that extent maybe transformation at least as goodman has it here is 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 critical and is only kind of given to those characters worthy of it that's so interesting because I was also thinking about how Diana's friend Brenna, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but how she also has this brief moment of seeming like she's transforming when she and Diana have that moment in the river together, but that afterwards she immediately reverts back to the way she was before going out late, um, getting back together with Anton, that that she like. Daphne, unlike Victor, like these other minor characters, yeah, doesn't has this glimmer of possibility of transformation, but ultimately isn't worthy of it. And it makes me th- like wonder why it is that some characters are worthy and some aren't. Like, what's the difference between, say, Victor, Peter, and Aiden and Colin? I wonder, you know. Uh, t- to what extent it's a willingness to use others, right? I mean, so Victor um, is obviously, uh, I guess in a uh, economic sense, willing to use the clientele, not that they're not getting anything in return for that, for their investment in, in Everworld. But um, Peter's obviously very willing to use Colin in his art. I don't know that I would pin that on Brenna necessarily, but whereas we get Colin and Nina who who seem pretty averse to, to using people and are looking for something authentic. Mm. Although I'm not sure. I mean, I like this idea that some may be worthy of transformation and some may not. But I think actually it may just be that this novel is about focusing on those people whose moment of transformation is now. And that mm. maybe this is not the moment of transformation for Victor and Peter. Maybe their moment has come before and they have transformed into what they are today, which is not necessarily a more positive thing, or maybe it's yet to come. Um, same with Brenna. But I think that the novel is looking at those people who are in that moment of, of change. And so, you know, I found it interesting that, you know, there's a lot of references to Greek mythology here. And I in particular was focused on the name Daphne, partly because in another book we did for the show, which Alice was also on discussing with me, um, Rebecca Mackay's The Hundred Year House, there is also a character named Daphne. And so I had actually looked into this character before. It's not necessarily a Greek myth that I was particularly familiar with. But the story of Daphne is the story of this, um, of this naiad, I believe, who is pursued by Apollo, who is the god of poetry, as well as the god of the sun and, and many other things. And in trying to escape him, she transforms into a laurel tree, and she is thus safe from him. And there is this way that transformation is both salvation, but also can be stultifying in a way because she, she's now immobilized. She cannot move. And so I think, you know, there are these 
two sides to it. So I think it may be, and I think that's reflected in the novel. I think that it is not entirely clear that, that the ways that, that all of the characters change and evolve is, is only positive and that maybe there are some things that are also lost by that transformation or that evolution. Yeah, Sid, I think that's, it's really interesting, and it has me thinking again about Victor, too. Am I remembering right? Victor and, and his brother are both immigrants, right? They're, they come, and I, I can't remember where they come from, but they come to the U.S., and in some senses they've, they've, they've bought wholly into, right? And now they're on the vanguard of this kind of technology, and it comes out with this, this thing we don't even have, right? These aeroflakes that create an even more real virtual experience. And, but it's very much all about that ownership. And so he maybe represents a certain kind of that piece of our culture. Um, and as does Peter and then Colin and the whole enclave that Maya, his mother has built in Cambridge with them is, is kind of an antithesis to that in a lot of ways that it's, it's a very sharing community. They're very open. It's not about ownership. Everybody's in and out of each other's houses. There's these weekly potlucks and the whole sort of neighborhood takes care of each other. And that seems like kind of the the saying, no, it's not, you know, if, if you don't want to buy into to that that particular version of the immigrant success story, um, th that we have this this other thing that, that, that Colin's mother has, has managed to latch onto and build. But you know, in, in a way that, that community kind of fails too, right? Because you look at Aiden and Diana and Colin and instead of being nurtured by it and feeling loved and supported they especially Aiden and Diana I think you see them feeling very alone very isolated and whether it's the fault of the community or the fault of so many other forces around them the community hasn't saved them or replaced their father who is an absentee father or replaced the maybe the, the security that comes with with a higher financial status. So maybe their, their mom didn't need to work as many hours or as many night shifts and that feeling of security. Or, or you know, maybe, and, or, or maybe not. Maybe it's simply the process of adolescence, but the community can't save that either. And so you have Aiden, who at the start of the novel has really turned away from that, not just, you know, not just the world in general, but that world in particular, as well as the world of school, his friends, his whole community. And he chooses Arcadia. He chooses Everworld. He chooses these, this world of video games where, where there's, you know, more of a sense of like success is more clearly defined where there are rules and where there is a currency in which, you know, you, there, you can exchange things and you can always redeem yourself. You can always come back to life. You can always try again. And you know what you're going after. And that's just a lot easier, even than this loving, nurturing community that his mother is part of. And then you have Diana, who, you know, whose response, instead of turning into this, you know, fantasy world, is just to try to fade out of the world, to dress in dark colors and to disappear and to not be seen, because being seen is, is too painful. Well, and that Diana finds a different way to escape when she starts running, and that that becomes her mechanism of transformation in a different way than Aiden is transformed by um, Everworld. But I think you're right Sid, to point out that the process of transformation is also a process of loss, that it's not just improvement. And that 
came through to me most, I think, when Colin is talking about Daphne on page 144, and he says, how strict and narrow real life turned out to be. Of course you wanted a career. Of course you wanted to be with the girls so much better than you. It wasn't even funny. But he missed being funny and stupid and irresponsible. So even though he thinks that things are getting better, it comes it comes with a loss. And that, thinking back to that myth about Daphne, that it's almost it's almost like that is inherent to transformation, that, that when you are in the process of transforming, as so many of these characters are, the possibilities are so endless. But then once you decide on what you want and what you want to be, that those possibilities are closed off, that, that like Daphne turning into the laurel tree, you no longer have those possibilities. You have to give up some of the things that, uh, like being stupid and funny or responsible, that Khan gives up in order to be with Nina. Yeah, it's like, you know, at the beginning of the novel, um, Colin's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Noelle, says to him, the only thing you care about is the beginning and the end. You can never be in the middle. You can never actually be with someone or learn something or get something done because you're always starting and then leaving. And it's almost like, I think she almost misstates it there because it's not like he cares about the end. He like just cares about the beginning. He's always starting and then leaving. Leaving's not really an end. It's just a way of avoiding the middle because beginnings are so exciting. Beginnings are full of possibility. Like everything lies before you. And, you know, once you get into the middle, some of those doors start to close. And I think that that relates to his interest in using chalk because chalk is this, you can wipe it away. It's not permanent. It's constantly, you can always change the chalkboard, but chalk and dust also really brings up to that off-repeated phrase, it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that Colin thinks that our chalk is this really ephemeral form, but it's bringing up all these resonances about death that are not ephemeral at all. And, and that raises another theme that I thought was really interesting in this novel about how so much of what happens that seems figurative or virtual has a huge effect on the real happenings in the novel from the wasting disease that forces Arcadia to shut down this virtual disease that then has a real effect to Colin's sort of obsession with Nina that he insists doesn't matter, but actually really does matter both to him obsession and with Daphne. Oh, obsession with Daphne. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> that, it actually does, it does matter. The things that he thinks are not that important in real life, actually, or not that they're not that important in real life, but that the things that are sort of fake come to have real meaning. I think, yeah, absolutely. It has me thinking to Alice again about Daphne and her, her one dimensionality, right? That, that when, you know, when push comes to shove, Colin, as he says, he obviously, he wants Nina, right? But there's something alluring about Daphne until the realities really collide there because she doesn't have more to offer than, than, than what she really is kind of as an, as an avatar or something to chase. And in terms of transformation, then it, you know, growing up, right there, everybody's coming of age at various points here and growing up is a kind of transformation. And a lot of that I think is about giving up the fiction, giving up the non-reality. And we see it in a in a really kind of classic sense. It's like kids play video games, and at some point, you most people anyway stop playing video games. And 
yet and yet there are some you know the, those characters that we're kind of talking about at the beginning who don't give that up like victor and, and peter who are and daphne too who are like that is their entire life and even the parties that they hold kind of in reality have this fictional i mean they're way over the top with the amount of money and what's what what they what they are and where they are and even those are another kind of fiction in reality um, when people go to work in Arcadia, they're so closed off from the surrounding environment, right? It's like layers of layers, and everybody's in their cubicle inside these crazy op opaque glass boxes, building a reality that is so far away from the real life that I think all the characters that Goodman has us focus on really have to start building and, and confronting and understanding. So, Brad, you talk about the, the difference between the fictional life and the real life and and how, as we age, we give up childish games, as they say, right, and then give it the video games. But I wonder how that differs from fiction as fiction, fiction as the novel, right, or fiction as poetry, which, you know, Aiden kind of seems to be turning from his video gaming to, to the reading of poetry and literature. And that, too, can be an escape, a way of living a life that is not yours, a way of going into another world because your own world is harder to handle. And yet we don't critique that. We don't say that person reads too much. Well, sometimes people say that about me, but most people, they don't say that person reads too much. And so what do you think the difference is there? I mean, in this novel, and maybe I'm reading into this because it's what I think too, that people are edified or the characters are edified by their interaction with art, whether it's, you know, the art in the museum that Colin and Nina go to for the party or whether it's the poetry that Aiden is reading in his, you know, private tutoring with Nina. And I wonder if, or I'd be curious to hear what you guys think the difference is, but I wonder if it goes back to that phrase that fiction is the truth or the, the lie that tells the truth, that there's something inherently true about the poetry that Aiden is reciting. He says that he feels like these poets are saying things that he feels himself, but they're writing it obviously, you know, centuries earlier. Is that the difference or is there, is there something else going on or is there no difference? Well, what I found so interesting was that I don't feel like this novel really sets up a black and white where the video game world is, is simply evil because the picture it creates, the picture it manages to draw of the world is so alluring. Like I think it does an amazing job of making that world seem incredibly beautiful and compelling to the point where I have no interest in playing video games, but I was, you know, compelled to imagine what it would be like to kind of be in your room and open this box and have these arrow flakes create a forest around you and to be able to exist in that realm. I mean, it's kind of like what the best fiction does. It's like when I'm immersed in a book, I feel like I am in fully in that world. And so I don't think it creates a clear dichotomy where it suggests that, um, that that is entirely negative. I think it, it is, it is, it is more subtle than that. It's, you know, it's this issue of we all have internal and external lives. And I think in some ways, this is the literal made metaphor, right? Like Aiden's external and internal lives uh, exist regardless. But here you have it literalized where his external life is his world of school and his internal life is this world of video games. But that's going to be true, you know, of everybody. And the question is when you, when you turn too much to your internal life and you cease to communicate with the people around you, that becomes detrimental, deforming, limiting. 
uh, not allowing for the possibility of transformation, I think. And maybe it's a question of like, when is it taken too far? That there is beauty in it and we're not to deny the beauty in it and the allure of it and the, and the sort of necessariness of it because we do need, I think, those two lives. But can you, can you err too much on one side or the other? I think that makes a lot of sense that it's not the form that's different or that's causing this difference. It's actually the way in which they're using the form. Yeah. And I think as I think about how Alice Goodman sort of works this to an ending for us and, 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 you know, it, it, we're left in a positive place. And largely I think that it's because of people, right? She draws these characters back into people. So Aiden's issue, in some senses, this is the problem of social media and multi um, player games is in some sense you are interacting, right? There are real people on the other ends of those screens and, and lines. And yet it's such a solitary experience, right? So, but when she gives Aiden poetry, she gives him this very public forum. He has to stand up, he has to recite. So it, it is maybe a private, it's an escaping as he works to memorize the poem on his own, but yet ultimately it has to come before people. And then, you know, we end up again in the, in this wonderful, very warm environment in Cambridge with his mothers too. And like that, that's where she brings us to close it off, right? You bring all those people together so they can actually be in a physical space. And, and it's kind of a way of bringing worlds together too. You know, as we talked about like this, in, but the internal and external world, but there's other ways that lives are double here. And, you know, you have Nina and Colin who are both born in Cambridge, born in the same hospital, you know, very close together in time. And at one point they have this conversation about how none of their experiences following birth overlapped at all because of their different socioeconomic statuses or strata in which they, in which they lived. And it's the, again, these, like these two worlds, just like you have the, the real world and you have the world of Everworld, the game. And for a while, it seems like there is no overlap, but then they start to kind of engage in each other's world. So you have Nina teaching at what turns out to be Colin's old high school. So she has in some ways entered his world and you have Colin who becomes employed by Arcadia, the video game empire, which is owned by Nina's father. And so he enters into her world and there's ways in which that overlap works and there's ways in which it fails. There's ways in which, you know, each of them understand how that world operates and the person who's new to it does not know how it works and can't succeed in it. But there is kind of a bringing together or an attempt to bring together that I think you see there at the end. And I think that also gets back, Alice, to what you said, too, about this this idea of, you know, the, 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 the virtual that can have these real-world consequences. So, you know, you have, again, you know, this, this virtual plague in Everworld that then ends up shutting down the video games because it has these real-world consequences. And again, it's this notion that, like, these two things can't really exist in isolation. Like, ultimately, there's always going to be an interaction, and the best you can hope for is to make it one that is you know, successful or positive in some way. That sounds right to me, Sid, that, yeah, ultimately this is where Goodman brings us, is this place where you have to, um, all these worlds merge, collide, and but ultimately, you know, when, when they're stripped of, when they're stripped of their non-reality, what they have left are the, the people there. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the uplifting part, right? That's the part that we find warmth in and some hope in is that, okay, that at the end of the, literally, I think at the end of the day, here they are kind of around the, the communal dinner table with each other. Well, Brad and Alice, as ever, it's been great talking to both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Sid.
I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Margaret Gerges recommends the novel Life as We Knew It by Susan Beth Pfeiffer. Hi, I'm Margaret Gerges, teen librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to review and recommend the Young Adult Book of the Week, Life as We Knew It by author Susan Beth Pfeiffer. An asteroid is about to hit the moon. It's big enough to see with the naked eye. Interesting, but so what? The sun, the moon, the stars, asteroids haven't affected them before, so what's the big deal now? When Miranda heads out to watch the impact for a school writing assignment, she hasn't any idea that in a few moments her life will turn upside down, that the comforts and safety she has taken for granted her whole life will be a longed-for memory. The impact of the asteroid on the moon pushes it closer to the Earth, and some people immediately panic as the moon looms larger, closer in the sky than ever before. Others remain calm, waiting for more information, but when fights break out for food and necessities, even the most level-headed start to crumble. Communication systems fail, and no one knows anything. What's happening, where loved ones might be, is all a mystery. Family no longer means the people you've known your whole life, your parents, your siblings, your cousins, your grandparents. It's the neighbor you barely knew before. It's the preacher with nothing but hope to give. It's anyone who can help you survive. As colossal high tides wash away coastal cities and volcanoes wreak havoc on the Midwest, Miranda realizes that the world as she knew it no longer exists and maybe never will again. The question is, how long can she survive this distorted shadow of what she used to know? For more teen books and programs, visit the library's teen center at the Ives Main Library at 133 Elm Street. You can find more information on our website at www.nhfpl.org. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. As a reminder, all books discussed on Book Talk can always be found at the New Haven Free Public Library. Thanks, Margaret. On our next show, airing September 6th, we'll be talking about the new novel, The Burning Girl, first with the author, Claire Massoud, and then with my guest readers, Christopher Jansma and Emily Moore. You can see what else is coming up and listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. And, as ever, you can share your thoughts on this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>